In our last meeting together, in our study of the book of James, James began chapter 4 talking about three wars that are being fought on a regular basis. We learned, first of all, there is a war with others that has taken place. The second war is that with ourselves. And the third war is the war with God. He then turns or ends this chapter talking about the will of God. And this occurs for a very good reason, because the two themes are closely related. It's really important that we understand as we start out in this session that when a believer is out of the will of God, he becomes a troublemaker, and he's at war with others and himself because ultimately he is at war with God. Listen carefully once again. When a believer is out of the will of God, he becomes a troublemaker, he's at war with others, and there's a war that takes place in his own heart, and the root of that problem is is that that person is at war with God. Now let's take a look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, and we'll see how these two themes are woven together. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, we read these words. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it is said, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Now come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin." If you'll recall from our last session, we as believers are encouraged to be growing beyond selfishness. We learn that selfishness, or actually the word is used coveting or lusting, is the root to all quarrels and conflicts. Now for the believer, this strong desire to please ourselves is in direct conflict with our new nature, which is designed to please God. Now if you notice in verses 4 through 6 in this particular chapter, It says that you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of the things that we need to recognize is that the Bible clearly teaches that giving God anything less than 100 percent is like cheating on him. The world is used of an adulteress or adultery, which indicates a lack of faithfulness. One of the things that we need to recognize is that when a, when a believer, when a person puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, that old things pass away and all things become new, that the desire is no longer a desire to please ourselves, but we live to please God. If we're going to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, which is God's ultimate goal for every one of his children, that we grow into the image of his son, that we're conformed to the image of Christ, then we need to recognize that there is a different way of living that God requires of us. Not only does he require it of us, but he also gives us the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life to be able to live a life that's pleasing to God. Those who are outside of Christ or who are not in Christ, those who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, live to please themselves. And all we've got to do is look back on our life and realize how true that is that each one of us, before we came to know Christ, the first person that was to be pleased in our life was ourself. We live to please ourselves. But that's not to be the, the case any longer for those who are in Christ. Our goal, as, as it was the goal of our Lord, when he said, it's the, it is my goal, or not my will, Father, but yours be done, that Jesus came to this earth to please his Father. And we are told that our goal as believers, ultimately, is to please God in all that we do. The desire that each of us should have would be to live our life in a way that God gets the glory and pleasure. In fact, you know, it's the chief end of man, it's been said, is that man is here for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Now, that certainly is true of the life of the believer. And for those who are outside of Christ, uh, there is no recognition of that reality. But on the other hand, we need to realize that this book, as it's written, the book of James is written to those who have put in their faith, faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're new creatures. All things have passed away. All things become new. It's important that we understand that God's goal is that we grow up in our faith. And so as we look at this, how are we to resolve this tug of war that takes place between our will and our desires and that of God's will and his desire for the life of the believer? Every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, recognizes this tug of war that takes place. The tug of war of, am I going to do what's pleasing to God and do what's right in God's sight? Or am I going to continue to do the things that I'm used to doing or by habit have done all through my life? And that is put myself first and my desires first and not trust God in the areas in which he wants us to trust him. And so as we look at this tug of war, in fact, it was uh, the Apostle Paul who said, why is it that I continue to do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I do want to do I don't do? Who can set me free from this confusion that I'm in? And he says, thanks be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who can set us free and give us deliverance from our past and also forgetting what lies behind, we press on to what lies ahead. So as we're going through this tug of war, what's practical and relevant as we get into the book of James, we learn that this, this tug of war is to be resolved very simply, and he gives us the direction that we need in understanding how do we resolve this tug of war between our desires and God's desires for our life. And he tells us in verse 7, first of all, he says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. 
the idea of submitting before God, if you recall from our last session, is that we are to submit to his authority in our life. It has the idea of putting God first, him first, 100%, God first, and, and anything else beyond that is second. See, if we're putting God first in our life, then we don't love the world or the things of the world. And that's why he had just told us that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. We cannot please God at one moment in our life and in the next moment live to please ourselves. Anytime that we do that, we're at enmity, it says, or an enemy of God. We're cheating on God. We're not faithful to God. And we have to keep him first. The greatest commandment, if you'll recall, is the fact that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And after that, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. See, submission to God is throwing up a, a white flag, basically, and saying, Lord, I surrender. Whatever it is that you want me to do, I will do. Whatever it is that the direction you want me to go, that's the direction that I'll go. And we submit to his authority in our life. And as we do that, the Bible says that we resist the devil and that he will flee from us as we submit to God. Now, in verse 8, we're told that we're to draw near to God and that he will draw near to us. Very practically speaking, if we confess our sin, we're told in 1 John 1, uh, verses, uh, verse 9, 1 John 1, 9, is that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we confess our sin, which is agreeing with God, what he says about what we're doing or what we're thinking or what we're saying, that if, if, if it's wrong before God, we agree with God that what we're doing is wrong and we repent and we turn from that behavior or that lifestyle, and we turn back towards God. That's why we're told if we draw near to God, that he'll draw near to us. The easiest pursuit in the life of the believer is his pursuit of God, because God is always, as the prodigal son learned, the father was running towards him as he confessed his sin, and as he repented from what he was doing and turned back and headed back toward home, the father was already running, and he hugged him and embraced him. And so as we look at this, this whole idea of repentance from sin and turning to God carries with it the idea of being miserable in verse 9. It says, be miserable. It's a command. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, one of the things that's not spoken of enough is the fact that, you know, there is mourning and there is weeping and there is misery and sorrow when we recognize and understand the depravity of sin. As we see ourselves in, in the light of a holy God and understand the character of God, that, that, uh, that sin is, is falling short of the glory of God. And we realize how disappointing it is for the Father, for, for God to see us as we sin and as we commit acts that are offensive to him. It says that we're to turn that laughter, that laughter that comes with the mockery of doing things that are wrong before God, to turn that laughter into mourning and into sorrow and our joy and, and uh, into gloom. And as we look at that, we realize that that's what it takes to draw near to God. Now, also, he tells us the third thing that we're to do is to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord and that he will exalt us. You know, the point of humility is, is that we cannot submit to the authority of God without humility in our life. We cannot draw near to God with, without humility because we have to admit that we are wrong. We have to admit that what we're doing is going the wrong direction. And there's a certain amount of humility, obviously, that's required in, repent, in repentance as we turn from our sin, turn from what we're doing and turn towards God. 
So it's exciting as we look at this and realize that this tug of war in our hearts can be easily resolved by applying those three principles of submission to God, drawing near to God through confession and repentance, and the humility that's involved that God promises as we humble ourselves, as we deny ourselves, we pick up our cross daily and follow him. Self-denial is a key, key element of the new, new life or a life that's been transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit and, uh, and, among, and amongst those gifts or those fruits of the, or the fruit of the Spirit that's manifested in different ways is that of self-denial or self-control. Now, I say all of this because it leads us back to yet another crossroad on the journey to spiritual maturity, and that is if we are to grow in our faith, it will occur as we are growing through obedience. Growing through obedience. As we look at this particular text, we're going to find out that we should, we should be growing through obedience. And the question is, uh, obedience to what? And the answer is found in the text that we'll concentrate on mostly in this particular session. And that is obedience to the will of God for our life. You know, for too many Christians, the will of God is looked at, at as a, um, well, in fact, it was Winston Churchill who said this of Russia, not in, in, uh, well, during World War II, he said this of Russia. He said that Russia was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And for many Christians, or too many Christians, the will of God is looked at as the same. You know, God's will is some mysterious thing. It's a riddle that's wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Can we ever truly understand the will of God for our life? And I have talked with and heard of Christians who have tried to discern the will of God by using some rather bizarre methods. And uh, I'd like to share some of those with you. Perhaps uh, some of you can relate to uh, the lady that I heard of recently who received a brochure advertising a tour to Israel. And because she was going, because going to the Holy Land was one of her lifelong dreams, she really wanted to go. Now, she had the money to go, she had the time, the interest, and the strength, but she was struggling with whether or not it was God's will for her life. So before going to bed, she read the pamphlet once more and noticed that the airplane that they'd be traveling on was a Boeing 747 jumbo jet. Well, after spending a sleepless night wrestling with all the pros and cons and praying whether it was the will of God and God please reveal somehow or another so that I know, she was greatly relieved the following morning and the reason that she knew that it was God's will for her to go was as she turned and she looked and glanced at her digital alarm clock, it read 747. And that was her sign from God. It was a 747. She woke up at 747 in the morning. And so therefore she concluded that that must have been God's will in her life. And if you think that's kind of strange, I heard of a collegian who needed a car and he didn't know which one God would have him purchase. But as a Christian, he was determined to find God's will before he bought anything. Well, one night he had a series of dreams and apparently everything in his dreams was yellow. And he decided that that was God's answer to his dilemma. And that was after checking out several years car lots the next day, he finally found the one he was sure the Lord would have him buy. And as you could probably guess, it was yellow. It was yellow inside and out. And he didn't bother to even check it out. He didn't even bother to go on a trial run around a block because it was yellow. Everything in his dreams was yellow. So he assumed that naturally that must have been God's will for his life. And as you can imagine, appropriately, the car turned out to be a lemon. So as we look at these things, it's interesting, the bizarre uh, gyrations that Christians go through trying to find the will of God. But nothing is as bizarre as the man that I heard of who sat by a window with his Bible open, and he allowed the wind to whip through the pages of his Bible, and as the wind would whip through it, he would 
throw down his finger onto a page and he would find his verse for the day to claim. So one particular day, his finger fell at random on the words and Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, as you can imagine, he was bewildered, a little shock. He tried again and landed on this time, go and do thou likewise. While further dismayed, he quickly tried a third time as the wind and finger method led him to this final verse, and whatsoever thou doest, make sure you do it quickly. Now, we look at these things and we say, that's ridiculous. I mean, of course it is when you think about it, and so are all these strange approaches to determining God's will. Yet we've hardly scratched the surface of the wild and weird methods well-meaning people use to find his will. It happens every day among people just like you and me who sincerely want to know the will of God for their lives. Now, lest we oversimplify the problem, let's understand that, you know, there are some legitimate areas of concern that aren't specifically addressed in the Bible. And intelligent, caring, genuine people in God's family are often at a loss to know what he would have them do in these situations. I'm thinking of a high school student that I know, a senior who plays outstanding basketball. He's in great demand. He can attend his choice of a dozen or more excellent universities, each one of them offering a full scholarship. The question that he and his family struggles with is, which one of these choices is God's will for this Christian athlete? And being involved in professional sports, I've seen many, many guys go through the same dilemma or the same gyrations of trying to figure out what God's will is in their life as they're offered numerous opportunities with free agency to go from one team to the other. Uh, do you want to play on a team that has a chance to win? Do they want to play on a team where they'll make the most money? What city are they going to live in? How close is it to family? How important is that? Uh, and on and on and on, the, the uh, decisions have to be made. And which is the will of God? And it gets very difficult when there's numerous choices at their disposal. I talked to a young man not too long ago. He was a senior in high school, and he was being pursued by Major League Baseball. And several scouts came to him and said, hey, look, you know, if we draft you, will you sign a contract with us, or are you going to go to college? And there's several things that have to be taken into consideration. You know, what round will you draft me in? What kind of signing bonus will I get? What kind of salary are you talking about? Is it worth pursuing that, or do I have a better chance of going to a four-year school, uh, maybe developing my skills a little bit, and if nothing else comes of my baseball career, can I at least get an education? And so the questions continue. God, help me understand. As a believer, the questions are, God, help me understand which direction to go in my life. I talked to a single woman not long ago. She was happy, well-educated, had a good job, hassle-free lifestyle. But to her surprise, she recently found herself attracted to several, several young men at her church. Now, all of them were believers as she is, and she started to think seriously about marriage. You know, is this God's will? Is this God giving her this desire to start seeking uh, a relationship to establish for the rest of her life? And she was genuinely concerned. God, what is it that you'll have me do? Or take a family living in Southern California. They have numerous friends, a good church, a nice home. The family roots are nearby, but mom and dad are retired, and they're starting to, to uh, dislike the hurried pace mixed with, mixed with the heavy traffic, too many people. It's starting to take its toll on them and the fun out of their life. They want to move, but they're asking the question, is it God's will for them to do that? And if it is God's will for them to move, where do you want us to move, and, and, and what do you want us to do when we get there? 
We see it often in a, as a contractor. I see it often in a growing economy. What jobs do we take? Who do we do work for? When's the jobs going to start? Um, are, are the people trustworthy? Uh, do they have the financing in order? Um, do we have enough guys, manpower? Do we have enough capital resources available to be able to do all the work that's out there? Can we honor our commitments and do it the time that we're supposed to do it? And the questions go on and on. And I don't know about you, but there are, obviously these are questions where we need to seek the wisdom of God and specifically the will of God in these areas of our life. You know, one, on top of all of these questions, there's also what we, this, this statement that we find in the New Testament in Ephesians 5.17, where we read this, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen to that again. So then do not be foolish. We know that it's a fool who says in his heart there is no God. We know that the contrast throughout the Bible of a foolish person and a wise person is found num- on numerous occasions. The book of Proverbs, for example, is filled with many of these contrasts between those who are wise and those who are foolish. And God is warning us, so don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And the inference there, or the implication is that there are those of us as believers who are foolish in our thinking and the contrast to that is is that there are also those who have understanding and understand that it's God's will that we're to pursue with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we love God first and put him first, that means, God, we want to know your will in our life. What is it that you'll have us to do? I don't want to be a foolish person. I want to be a man of understanding or a woman of understanding. And so as we look at these things, you know, these such verses prod us off the fence of indecision, yet we're anxious not to do something foolish in the process. And even when our heart is right and our motive is pure, the will of God is not always set forth in a crystal clear manner. And all of this I say because it brings us back to our study in the book of James, where James carries the concept of submission to God one step further as he relates God's will to our goals and our plans for the future. See, apparently the wealthy merchants in the assembly here, as he writes in in this particular letter, did not seek God's will about their plans and decisions. They were measuring success by their own standards and not by God's standards. They had had a history of doing things that pleased themselves. They had a history of doing things uh, that would be according to their own desires. But now as new believers, they were struggling or, nor, or maybe they didn't even understand. And that's why the rebuke is so clear. They did not understand that they are no, no longer to live the way they used to live or think the way they used to think. That if any man is in Christ, old things are passed away. All things become new. And so the, the rebuke that we find here is that these men, these wealthy merchants that, that James writes to, were people who were considering their own plans, their own decisions, their own desires for the future. And we need to notice carefully that, the, that there are three things that are laid out for us in this paragraph. There's three truths that we must never forget as they relate to God's will for our lives as believers. Now, the first thing that we see is that I want to point out, and number one, I guess if you're going to follow in an outline form, it would be put this way. Number one, the plans that we make cannot be guaranteed. The plans that we make cannot be guaranteed. And that's found in verses 13 and 14 where we read these words, and we'll read them again, where it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, and spend a year there, and engage in business, and make a profit says, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. 
You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Notice that where it says come now, we find that's a, a second person singular and you who say is second person plural, indicating that James challenges the individual and all believers at the same time. God wants all of us to think carefully and respond appropriately to what he is about to say. You know, what's interesting is there oftentimes as we're reading through the Bible, we're thinking, well, you know what, this really doesn't apply to me. You know, this isn't a problem that I have. But the point that he's making is this. It may not be a problem that you have at this moment in your life, but it may be a problem that you have in the, at a future date unless you understand these principles and begin to internalize them and apply them in your life. So he's saying not only is this applied to the individual singular who may be having this problem at this specific moment in time, but it also applies to all of us and that this is a principle that God wants every one of us as his kids to recognize and understand because understanding it will lead us on the road to spiritual maturity. And that is the plans that we make cannot be guaranteed. The plans that you and I make cannot be guaranteed and he lays out several reasons according to the text that this is true we cannot guarantee our own plans for the future first of all consider the obvious complexity of life the complexity of life you know think of everything that's involved in life today tomorrow buying selling gains losses where we look at verse 13 and it says today or tomorrow we're going to go to such and such a city we're going to spend a year there we're going to engage in business and we're going to make a profit everything seems so simple when we sit down to put this quote business plan together we falsely believe that we're in control of time today i'm going to do this tomorrow i'm going to do that we're going to be there for a year this is a game plan i've got it all set up you know and we are told as believers that we are to make plans but we're also warned that while man makes his plans, the Lord must guide his steps. That there's a, there's a relationship there, an ongoing relationship between us and God, who as we make plans, they're all subject to the will of God for our life and the direction that he leads us. You know, as they're going to go to such and such a city, they're going to they're, they're go to a hot market. You know, I see that oftentimes in the construction business because being in the, in the uh, contracting business, we see hot markets across the country. Uh, we see a hot market here in Southern California right now. There's a hot market in the, south, in the uh, southeast outside of Atlanta. We've got friends who live in Georgia, and they talk about the housing market and the commercial market that's booming. We've got friends that live outside of Denver, and they're saying the same thing. There's hot spots all throughout the country of hot markets and many businesses sit down and they say where can we penetrate this market what's the new market where, what can we do and they put a game plan together and on paper it all looks so simple but what's interesting about it is is that these people that were first being addressed this problem was first being addressed had one motive and the motive was simply to make a profit in the greek it exposes their desire or their love of gain first timothy 6 warns us that as believers that the love of the, the love of money is the root to all evil. And we'll talk more about that as we look at James chapter 5, but he warns us that it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And uh, also that he warns that some of us as believers have even wandered from the faith. We saw in the, in the parable of the seed and the sower in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus warned about the, uh, the uh, worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that would come and choke out the fruit and the life of those who had heard the word of God. And so they were driven by profit, Everything looks simple on paper. They put their business plans together. It sounded simple. But apart from God and his will, life becomes extremely complex. And that's why we see the contrast where, where James says, yet, 
yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. So not only do we learn of the complexity of life, which makes, makes guaranteeing our plans I- impossible, but we see the uncertainty of life. Now, this, is, this was something that every Jewish reader would understand because Proverbs 27.1 clearly says that we're not to boast about tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring forth. Don't boast about tomorrow because we don't know. See, these businessmen were making plans for a whole year when they couldn't even see ahead into one day. Notice the confidence. The confidence. In fact, what it is is the arrogance of man that says that we will go, we will stay, we will buy, we will sell, we will make a profit. It sounds simple, yet the Bible clearly teaches that their attitude is wrong before God. It's an er- attitude of arrogance. It's an attitude that does not sh- demonstrate humility. It does not demonstrate submission. It does not demonstrate that which God looks for in the life of every believer, and that is an open spirit and a teachable spirit. In fact, their attitude immediately brought to mind a parable that Jesus taught that was in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. So if you've got your Bibles, let's take a look at that. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21, where Jesus warned about this attitude of coveting, which is exactly what we find in the book of James, where we're told that we don't have, so we covet, we want, and so we, you know, that's what's the cause of, uh, of conflict and quarrels and things of that nature. But in Luke chapter 12, notice what Jesus said as he taught a parable about greed. Someone in the crowd said to him in verse 13 of Luke 12, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And Jesus very clearly says we need to be on our guard against every form of greed. The greed comes in subtle packages. It's never packaged the way that we think that it is. You know, it isn't like uh, Michael Douglas in the Wall Street movie who said that greed and greed is good and that greed is what what, uh, propels or motivates our economy. God is saying that greed is not good and we should be on guard against every form of it and to beware of it. He told them this parable to illustrate what he was saying. He said the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? As I was reading through this, I couldn't help but think about the fact that the reasoning of man is always in conflict with the revelation of God. We saw that in our last session, that God tells us that we are to rely upon his revelation through his word as God's word reveals his heart and reveals his will for our lives we see the contrast between accepting and trusting the revelation of God versus the reasoning of man in our own heart. In fact, I was reminded as I was reading through this of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where Solomon set out on a journey to try to find contentment and fulfillment and joy in his life. And it says that, I said to myself, come test yourself with pleasure. And several several stops along the journey that he made were to determine whether or not he could find satisfaction and joy outside of a relationship with God. His conclusion in Ecclesiastes 2.24 was, who can find enjoyment, who can find peace or contentment without a right relationship with the God who made him? And so the question as we go back to Luke 12, verse 17, as he began reasoning to himself, and notice too, as I was going through this, just as a suggestion, I I circled or underlined every time he spoke in the first person. This man said, this is what I will do. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain, my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease and eat and drink and be merry. You notice how many times he said, this is my decision. I will do this. I will do that. This is for me and my purposes and my plans and my goals for the future so that I can live an easy life as, as we look forward to this future. But notice one thing that he did not consider, and that is this. But God said to him, verse 20, you foolish person, are you fool this night, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? He says, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You notice that he looked at, he had one mistake in his calculation, and that was he forgot to consult God in his planning. You know, life is not uncertain to God, but it is uncertain to us. Only when we are in his will can we be confident of tomorrow, for we know that it is he who is leading us. It's fascinating as you look at this, all that, you know, change can happen in a twinkling of an eye. I was thinking the other night as I was laying in bed, and many of you probably can relate, and uh, we had the earthquake that hit 7.1 here in Southern California, and it jolted me out of bed and my wife and our kids. And, and as we were standing around, I realized that in just in a blink of an eye, in, in just a, just a flash, flashing moment, life can change, the uncertainty of life. You know, we see it, whether it's in an earthquake or a tornado or a hurricane or a flood or a fire or a war or a recession, that the uncertainty of life, the uncertainty of life validates or, or the fact that God says that you and I are not in control of our future. The third point, as we look at this, is also the brevity of life. Yet it is another reason, is, is yet another reason we can't control or guarantee our plans. You know, this is an oft-repeated theme throughout Scripture. To us, life seems long. We measure it in years. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate anniversaries. But, you know, in comparison to eternity, life is but a vapor. And, in fact, that's exactly the point that James makes in chapter 4 in, in verse 14 where he says, you know, you are just like a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. You know, a great homework assignment would be just to go home and uh, look in the mirror. If you're listening to this tape, look into a mirror, whether it's a compact or the mirror of your car or whatever, and just breathe into it for a second, just a into the mirror. And just watch how quickly that, that vapor dissipates. God is using that as a word picture to help us to understand that in the backdrop of eternity, our lives are just but a blink or a blip on the screen of, uh, against the black backdrop of eternity. Not long ago, I saw Billy Graham interviewed in a television interview, and uh, he was being asked uh, what the biggest surprise, the interviewer asked him what, what the biggest surprise of his very full life was. You know, all the travel, the millions of miles in travel, and the mass audience that he has spoken to, the access that he's had to countries throughout the world, the many different countries that he spoke at, um, as he's met with uh, dignitaries throughout the world, some of the most prominent personalities and world leaders throughout this past century. And without hesitation, as he was asked, you know, Dr. Graham, what, what is the biggest surprise that you've encountered in your life? And he said, without a blink of the eye, he said, the brevity of life. How quickly it has gone by. Here's a man who was almost 80. Life. He realized the brevity of life and how quickly it passed by. And so as we look at this, the Bible was very clear to point out this truth, the brevity of life, 
throughout the word of God, we see time and time again where the word of God tells us. For example, in the book of Job, we read, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. The cloud is consumed and vanishes away, Job 7, 9. It says, Our days upon the earth are but a shadow, Job 8, 9. Now my days are swifter than a post, uh, Job 9.25, and that was referring to the royal uh, couriers that hastened in their missions to, to pass a message along from the king to whomever was being sent the message. And as we go through it, we're told that it is appointed for, for man by God to die once, and then comes judgment, and that God knows every day that we'll live even before we've yet lived one, Psalm 139. You know, we count our years at each birthday and our anniversaries I've mentioned, but God tells us to number our very days. Psalm 90, verse 12 says that we're to number our days. Matthew 6, Jesus warns us not to worry about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, this past year I've been reminded of this truth as I've been asked to speak at several memorial services. In fact, I've been asked to speak at more memorials and funerals this year uh, than I have cumulative in the previous five years. And as I've been asked to speak at these services, I was reminded of the words of Solomon when he writes, The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. Speaking about the fact that there is much to be learned from the uncertainty and the brevity of life. That as we consider death, we're to consider the brevity of life and the plans of God that he has for each and every one of us. That it's appointed for us to die once and then comes judgment. And as I see people that come to memorials or to funerals and I see their sensitivity uh, to, the, to, uh, the, to the words that are spoken, I see their sensitivity to the brevity of life. And I realize that it's a wonderful time for us to take full advantage of that to share with them that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment and to share and to challenge them to find out if they're ready for that ultimate trip from this life into the next you know it's a, and it's one of those things that we learn in fact i was thinking uh, not long ago it was about a month ago that our son ryan was at a friend of his and uh, his friend was busy doing something. The phone rang, and he yelled for Ryan to answer the phone. So Ryan picked up the phone, and the person on the other end said, um, yes, is this the home of Rod Warren? And uh, Ryan said, yes, it is, but, but he's not home right now. And they said, yes, we understand that, uh, but can we speak to Mrs. Warren? And so Ryan got Mrs. Warren on the phone, and she grabbed the phone. And they, the next thing you know, they, they hung up the phone, and Ryan's friend and his mother went running out the door saying, Hey, Ryan, we'll call you. Uh, something's happened, and, and my dad's in the hospital. Anyway, make a long story short, he had been at the cardiologist, and he had taken a stress test, and everything was great. He had flying colors. The results of the test were perfect. Uh, the nurse was sitting down, filling out the chart, and uh, was asking Rod some questions, and, and uh, he, all of a sudden he became quiet. She turned around, and she looked, and uh, he kind of laid back. His eyes were closed, and she went over to him, thought that he was just resting, uh, felt his pulse, and, and sure enough, there's no pulse, there's no heartbeat. Uh, the cardiologist came in. You know, they, they tried to revive him and resuscitate him. They worked on him for 40 minutes, but the bottom line was this. It was appointed for man to die. In this particular case, it was the day of his appointment, and God called him home. That was it. He was done as far as his time here on earth. And in that brevity of life, it happened so quickly. You know, the wages of sin is death. And we must be prepared for the ultimate journey that takes place when we go from this life to the next and our accountability before God because it's appointed that we die and then comes judgment. The wages of sin is death. And the point is this, since life is so brief, we cannot afford merely to spend our lives, and we certainly do not want to waste our lives. The point is that God wants us as his, as his children, 
as we're growing in our faith to invest our lives in those things which are eternal. You see, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The question that I have for you is one, I hope that it's a penetrating one, but you need to ask, and that is, what are you doing with this life that God has given you? Have you made peace with God by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have not, what are you waiting for? Because it's appointed, and we don't know, and only God knows the day of that appointment. We take life for granted, but just as that illustration, that story illustrates, that today could be the last day that we have, and our appointment comes to pass. Also, as believers, if you really believe that today is your last day or could be your last day, would you not also try to resolve the differences or attempt to resolve differences that you have with your spouse or your child or your children or your parents or your family or your friends? Would you not also speak to one another in more loving tones and loving words and words of endearment and respect rather than criticism? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is edifying for the need of the moment, we're told in Ephesians 4. Would you not also get right with God? If, you, if, you do, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, won't you do that? If you have, won't you confess your sin and turn and repent and walk toward God or draw near to God and humble yourself under His mighty hand? See, I'm convinced if we really truly believed uh, that today may be our very last day, it would affect our actions and our attitudes. It would change for the better. You know, I don't know what... Mr. Warren and Mrs. Warren's last conversations were the day that he went to work and then ultimately to the cardiologist for his appointment. I don't know what the last words were that they spoke to one another, uh, but I know that they do. And the question I have and the challenge that I have as I read through this is, if we live our life in, in a way that's pleasing to God at this moment in time, that we'll never have regrets, we can live a life of no regret. And so we need to consider that. We need to consider as we consider what God's will is in our life, as we ask the question, we need to realize that the plans that we make cannot be guaranteed. Life is complex. Life is uncertain to anyone other than God. And life is also brief in the backdrop of eternity. Now this leads us to the second truth that we learn in this passage, and that is that the purposes of God must control our own plans. Well, it's obvious. If we cannot guarantee our plans for the future, then the purposes of God must be that which control our plans. In fact, if we look at this, we're told in verse 15 of James chapter 4 once again, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Notice the contrast that's taken place. First of all, there's the group that are saying we're going to go today or tomorrow, we're going to spend such and such, we're going to go such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yet the contrast is you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You can't guarantee it. We're just a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, there's another contrast. You ought to say, instead of this arrogant attitude that thinks that we're in control of our life, we ought to say, you know what, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills, in, in the place of what you and I have been saying maybe in our life, this is what the believer should say. So as we've come from those who have not known Christ to those who are born again, who have, have trusted in Christ, he's saying instead of having that arrogant, boastful attitude that you think you know what your future holds, have one that says, you know what, 
I'm going to express confidence in the Lord that if it's the Lord wills, we'll live and we'll do this or that. If it's God's will, we'll go into such and such a city. If it's God's will, we'll be there a month or two months or three months or a year. If it's God's will, we'll even make a profit. But the bottom line is this, that I'm confident in the Lord's leading in my life. And as we learn in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, memorize this sometime. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. No reservations. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding or your own human reasoning, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. See, if in this case, as we look at this, if the Lord wills, if in this case means maybe he will, maybe he won't. It's all in his hands. And you see, that heart reflects a person who's fully submitted to God who's humble to God, who's drawing near to God, who's always searching God and saying, Lord, I, you know, sh- show me the direction. Which direction should I go? What should I do? How should I do it? I don't know. I need wisdom. And if every man, any man lacks wisdom, if and since it's so, then let him ask of God who gives generously and above repro- reproach. You know, the thing I love reading about the Bible or going through the Bible is seeing how often this attitude is reflected in the lives of those who are fully sold out to the Lord. Men and women who were children of God who grew up into a mature, vital, active, passionate faith in their walk with God. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and as they appeared before the fiery furnace and they were challenged by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship this, this idol that he had made out of gold. And their attitude was one that showed submission to the Lord. It showed a confidence in the Lord's direction. It showed humility as they said to Nebuchadnezzar, you know what, we don't know what God's will is in this particular case. If he wills, he'll save us from the fire. But if he chooses not to save us, guess what? We're still not going to bow down before that idol. And sure enough, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And in this particular case, it was God's will that they survived that experience as a testimony to the power of God in their life. But their attitude of humility was, you know what? Well, you know, we're not claiming a verse and we're not making God do something because we're here to serve God. We're here to please God, not him. He's not here to please us. We serve him. And if he wants to save us, he will. And if he doesn't want to save us, he won't. But it doesn't really matter. As the Apostle Paul said, if I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. So there's no way we can lose as believers when we follow the will of God in our life. And I'm reminded also of Job, who said, even if he chooses, speaking of God, to slay me, you know what? I'll still trust in him. Even if he chooses to slay me, I'll trust in him. All throughout the New Testament, we find that's true of all of those who leaned on the Lord for their their understanding of the direction to go in their life. I think of Paul in the book of Philippians writing that, you know, absent from the body is present with the Lord, and I'm torn between staying here, which is good for you, but I'm also not, you know, I'm not hesitant about leaving this body and being present with the Lord. So it's it's a a win-win situation as far as Paul could see. As he trusted in God and his direction in his life, he realized that, you know what, he couldn't lose. Now, what's interesting about uh, Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26, read it sometime when you have a chance, is that Paul became convinced, and I believe that as he walked closely with God, he was convinced that God's will for him at that point in his life was that he would stay to help minister to those who needed to hear the gospel or with whom he can encourage in the word of God. Because he said, I've become fully convinced of this. Without a shadow of a doubt, Paul knew because God had revealed to him that he would not be dying at this point, even though he was imprisoned in Rome. 
Now, what's interesting to me is if you compare that to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, you'll find at that time, Paul said, you know what? I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. And appearing before me or there and up in the road shortly to come is that I will receive the crown of life that God will give to all who love is appearing, saying that, you know what? I'm convinced now that this is the end of the road or the end of my time here on earth. And God led him to that point of an assurance and a confidence and understanding. As he was in prison, as he wrote the letter to the Philippians in Rome, he realized that I'm convinced that I'm st- I still have time here on earth. As he wrote to, second, to Timothy in his second letter, he realized that his time on earth had come to a close. And I am convinced that peace comes from knowing God's will. And knowing that we are in God's hands and understanding what it is that he has for us in our life. And understanding that we, you and I are here to fulfill his purposes. This submissive attitude as we look at also eliminates boasting. In James 4.16 it says, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Notice the contrast again. Instead of taking life for granted and thinking that we're in control of our destiny, we're to say if the Lord wills, it's in God's hands, whatever, wherever God leads, that's where we're going to go. Whatever God decides is going to happen, that's what's going to happen. And we're careful to plan our ways, but we're also careful to make sure that the Lord directs our paths. And the arrogance or the ignorance of man is that we are boasting that somehow or another we are in control of our destiny when we're not. In fact, the word boast means to speak loudly. I mean, you can just picture in your mind a loud boisterous person who is boasting arrogantly that somehow or another they're the ones in control of their life this is what they're going to do this is the money they're going to make this is a city they're going to go to we all see people that are like that and you wonder and, and, and you just cringe at their lack of understanding that they are not in control of their destiny that in a moment's notice, an illness could happen. In a moment's notice, an accident could take place. In a moment's notice, that God's plans for them could be extremely or radically different from the plans that they think they have for their life. And it's sad to see people who are so arrogant because that arrogance God calls evil, and evil is sin in the sight of God. You know, man's boasting only covers up man's weaknesses. I like what um, Thomas Akempkis said when he said, man proposes, but God disposes. I like that. Man proposes, but it's God who disposes. And the reality is that we're foolish to ignore the will of God in our life. It's like going through dark jungles without a map or over a stormy sea without a compass. As I was flipping through the Discovery Channel and, and uh, kind of doing my typical channel surfing on TV, I came across a program that was on the Discovery Channel of, of people that were being taken into Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. And what was interesting about this particular trip was that it was a maze of tunnels and it was dense darkness when the lights were turned off. And the guide who was there gave this five point or five word sermon when he said this Stay close to your guide. Stay close to your guide. And isn't that great counsel? Every one of us as believers should stay close to our guide because as men we plan our ways, but it's the Lord who directs our steps. He's saying stay close to him. Lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him and he shall direct our paths. Now all of that leads us to the principle that we must learn and that's found in verse 17 of James chapter 4. 
I love this. As we read it, it says, therefore. And anytime we're reading through the Bible, we need to recognize and ask ourselves the question, what's it there for? Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, it connects the previous thought to the one that's now being introduced. And we are told, therefore, therefore what? Since we can't make plans and guarantee our own future. Therefore, since God's purposes must be what the, the directs every believer, he's saying, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Listen to that again very carefully and closely. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and he doesn't do it, to him it is sin. The question is, who knows the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? Well, in context, the right thing to do is what? Seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's will for our life. As God reveals his will, the right thing to do is what? It's to follow the will of God for our life. Loving God, in the context, we have a choice of loving God or loving the world. Living for God or living for ourselves. Drawing near to God or drawing near to the world. And when we do that, we're in opposition or enmity or enemy of God. When we're laying up treasures in heaven or we're going to lay up treasures here on earth. The treasures in heaven will be permanent. The treasures of earth will be temporary. Will we do God's will or will we do our own will? Will we live to please God or will we live to please ourselves? Now, the Bible says to him that knows the right thing to do, what's the right thing to do? Love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. What's the right thing to do? Live for God. What's the right thing to do? Draw near to God. Submit to God. Uh, humble ourselves before God. What's the right thing to do? Lay up treasures in heaven. What's the right thing to do? Do the will of God. What's the right thing to do? Please God. And we know that, and yet if we choose not to do that, then the Bible says that we are sinning before God. That we, as we learned already, were cheating on God, committing adultery against God. We're in love with the world instead of love of God. And as we look at these things, we need to recognize that we have a choice. And we will be held accountable for how we choose. Will we choose to follow God in our life? Will we choose to lean on our own or his direction or our own understanding? Will we choose to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and live for him, draw near to him, submit ourselves to, to him, humble ourselves, lay up treasures in heaven? Will we do the will of God? Will we live to please God? Because if we're going to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately God's goal for every one of us, then the Bible says that we will do the will of God even Jesus said that he comes to do the will of the Father and not his own will. He is our example that we are to follow. Now, in closing, what I want to do is I want to take a couple of minutes. Since the will of God seems to be such an elusive and confusing idea to many of us, let's close the session with some helpful suggestions on how we can know the will of God in our life. How to know the will of God. Number one. I guarantee you if you follow these simple suggestions that you will clearly understand and know the will of God in your life. Number one, read the Bible. Read the Bible. It's no wonder that many are clueless regarding God's will since so many spend so little or no time in his word. Remember, the Bible tells us that the entrance of God's word into our heart gives light. Psalm 119, 130. That it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119, 105. 
See, God's placed his word in our hands and allowed it to be translated into our tongue, both, by the way, our determined will, so that we could have a much more objective set of guidelines to follow than dreams or digital clock radios or hunches or impulses or feelings. Think about it. God has given us 66 books filled with precepts and principles, and the better we know his word, the more clearly we will know his will. Now, I just mentioned precepts and principles, and it's important that we recognize what that means. A precept, some of the statements that appear in the Bible are very specific. They're black and white truths that take all the guesswork out of the way. There's no way you can read this and not understand what the will of God is. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is a command, it's not a suggestion. Notice what he says, sanctification means being set apart. All believers are set apart for God's purposes, to bring God glory and and pleasure in how we live our lives. It says that all forms of sexual immorality, if you are single, outside of marriage, the Bible says you're not to have sex. Fornication, the Bible calls it. Homosexuality, sexual relationships with someone of the same gender. Adultery, a married person having uh, sexual relationships with someone other than his, his or her spouse. The Bible says that rape or incest is also a form of sexual behavior that is under that umbrella of sexual immorality that is outside the will of God. There's no gray area here. The Bible is very clear that we're to abstain from sexual immorality, that that's a precept. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 through 18 says, See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil. Revenge is not in the will of God. But always seek after that which is good for another person and for all men. Notice that revenge is against against the will of God. It's outside of the will of God. That we're to seek that which is good for all people. That we're to rejoice always. That's God's will. Are you a person who rejoices always? Always seeing God's hand in every situation in your life? And it says pray without ceasing. Do you have an attitude of prayer and communion with God? That's his will for every believer. That in everything we're to give thanks. Are you a thankful person? A person who praises God for that which God has given him? Or by contrast, as we go back to the book of James, we see that there are those who are coveting that which others have, forgetting or neglecting the very blessings and gifts that God has already given them. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 through 18. And there are very specific things as are slated are stated to be the will of God. There are even times that suffering is directly the will of God for us. And we see that in 1 Peter. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 says a lot about remaining single as well and being committed to one's marriage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says clearly that a Christian is definitely not to marry a non-Christian. And these are finely tuned precepts that reveal God's will. A great example are the Ten Commandments. They're not suggestions. They are very clear. They're easy to understand. Thou shalt not. And it's easy to figure out what exactly it is that we're not supposed to do. The Bible is filled with these clearly identifiable truths. Now, some of you are thinking, well, then what's a principle? Because if that's a precept, what's a principle? A principle is a general guideline to assist us through the so-called gray areas of life. It's not so much the do this or don't do that, but it's an appeal to use wisdom and discretion when such are needed. Uh, I'll give you an illustration to maybe help you understand it. We have both precepts and principles in our traffic laws. The sign, for example, that reads speed limit 35 is a precept. It's very clearly understood. The speed limit is 35 miles per hour. 
the one that reads drive carefully or slippery when wet, for example, is a principle that will mean one thing on a deserted street at 2 o'clock in the morning, for example, but something else entirely at 3.30 in the afternoon when children are walking home from school. The concept or, or principle of drive carefully when wet or, or slippery when wet, if it's not raining, obviously it doesn't apply, but the times that it does rain, then that principle is to be applied in that particular circumstance. But we need to remember this. A primary purpose of the Word of God is to help us know the will of God. So we need to become careful, diligent students of Scripture. Those who, those who will be a careful student of scripture those who will do that will be better equipped to understand his desires his will and walk in obedience now we also need to remain sensitive number two read the word is number one read the bible number two is remain sensitive in philippians 2 12 through 13 it presents a good cause for our cooperating with the words lead with the lord's leading says so, so then my beloved just as you've always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's the will for it's God's will who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure these verses highlight three specifics number 1 there's a willingness to obey there's also the need to work out or give ourselves to doing our part with a sensitive spirit. Notice fear and trembling. Then there's the promise that God will work in you to accomplish his plan. As we remain alert to his working, paying close attention to doors as he opens and closes them, he directs us into his will. We need to be very careful to recognize and understand that, you know what, oftentimes God's leading it takes place because of closed doors. We start to make a plan. We go in a certain direction, and the door is closed. Then we say, okay, Lord, that door closes. What door do you want us to go through now? And we continue to walk with him and allow him to lead us instead of running out in front of him because we never want to be out in front of God if it's not his will for us to be there because there's nothing but tragedy and heartache that are, that are going to take place. Closed doors are just as much part of God's leading as open ones. And the believer who wants to be doing God's will must remain sensitive and cooperative, not forcing his way into areas that God closes off. The Lord uses circumstances and expects us to read them with a sensitive, alert spirit. We must stop and check his word. We must look around and within ourselves. And there's one more helpful piece of advice to remember, and that's this. We need to also recognize the counsel of qualified people. It was Solomon who wrote, A plan in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Proverbs 20, verse 5. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so another man sharpens another. It was, in fact, you know, I was thinking of Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, who gave him good counsel when he challenged him to delegate his workload in Exodus 18. We're told that older women in God's family are told to instruct and encourage younger women, Titus 2, 3 through 5, in Colossians 3, 16, and Romans 15, 14, ex exhort Christians to counsel and admonish one another. It's a great help to have the wise, seasoned, uh, objective insights of those who are mature in their faith. In fact, it's like a quarterback. Here you go, first Sports Illustrated, and it's almost the end of our time together. It's like a quarterback facing fourth and one on the 30-yard line. The game is on the line. He calls a timeout. And he runs over to the sideline to consult with co with his coach. 
And, and it's the same with, with us as, as God's people. We need to call time out. We need to slow down. We need to cease striving and know that he's God. We need to be sensitive to his leading in our life. We need to call time out, go over to the sidelines, read the word of God, get into the Bible, remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life and, and that of those around us as we seek qualified counsel. We need to seek people who love the Lord with all their heart, who know the word of God, who can lead us to the word of God so that as we ask him, is this God's will in our life or is this the direction that God's leading, that they could say clearly whether or not, hey, there's precepts that we might be violating or there's principles that we may need to consider. We need to recognize and understand that, you know, that the headphones that we have on the sideline that go up to the box at the top of the stadium, the headphone that every believer has is the Holy Spirit, his presence in our life that help us to receive the word of God and he directs us into all truth. See, God makes his will known through his word, reading the Bible, as we stop and we study it, by remaining sensitive to circumstances in our life as we look within and sense what he's saying, and also through the counsel of others as we listen carefully, we're open and teachable to those around us who are godly people and can help us as we wrestle with the will of God in our life. You know, and as we discover God's will, there's one last thing that we must do, and that is very simply respond in obedience. You know, as we've gone through the book of James, we've learned that, you know, we're to walk by faith in the Lord, walk by faith in his word and not by sight, that we're to walk by the revelation that God gives us in in the word of God through the Bible and not by the reasoning of man in our hearts or those around us, that we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And uh, which is exciting as we consider this is that if we do these things, then God promises us that this path that we are walking on will lead us to spiritual growth. Forgetting what lies behind, we press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, and old things pass away, and all things become new. And the only way we learn what that is, that new path that we're to travel, is the fact that the Word of God is a light lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So as we consider this, we need to recognize that we're not, we're not in charge, we're not in control of our future, that our, hand, our destiny, our fate is in the hand of God. And knowing that, we can have, be comforted and understand that we, if our fate is in the hands of God, we may not know exactly what the future holds, but it's exciting to know that we know who holds the future. Father, we just want to thank you for this time to be together. We just thank you for your word and the clarity that it brings in the midst of so much confusion in our culture. We just pray that, uh, I just pray that there are those, for those who are struggling with knowing your will, that they'll spend time reading the Bible, understanding the differences between precepts and principles, that they'd also uh, remain sensitive to the Spirit of God's presence in their life and His leaning and His direction that He gives them, that they'll recognize the counsel of godly people and listen and be open and teachable. And as they hear, hear you and as they understand your direction, that they would have the confidence to trust in you with all their heart and to lean not on their own understanding, to acknowledge you in all their ways, knowing that you will direct their paths, to respond in obedience, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we just praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.